You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. You can see them counting the ballots more than once, two, three, four, five times. You would have to be a moron not to realize that that's voter fraud. Remember in the months after the 2020 presidential election when Rudy Giuliani repeatedly claimed that the election had been stolen from former President Trump and that he had evidence of widespread fraud? And he wasn't alone. Other Trump attorneys like Sidney Powell made similar baseless claims. An algorithm that probably ran all over the country to take a certain percentage of votes from President Trump and flip them to President Biden, which we might never have uncovered had the votes for President Trump not been so overwhelming in so many of these states that it broke the algorithm that had been plugged into the system. Giuliani has been temporarily barred from practicing law in New York and is facing possible disbarment. Powell could be disbarred after a suit brought by the State Bar of Texas. So why don't lawyers' lies have the same First Amendment protections as lies by others? Catherine Ross, a professor at George Washington University Law School, has written about this in a Bloomberg Law opinion piece. Is the public getting inured to lawyers lying after we saw a host of lawyers, from Rudy Giuliani to Sidney Powell, repeatedly lying about the election and sometimes with outrageous lies that have been proven false over and over? That is a huge problem. Following and even leading up to the 2020 election cycle, a lot of lawyers lied about what was going to happen what had happened in terms of alleging voter fraud that did not occur at any level that could have affected the election outcome. And in fact, almost all of the very few substantiated cases of illegal voting were done by Republicans. 
and could not have led to an overturning of the election results. We're also still seeing it among all the election deniers who are running for public office in many of the states. And uh, quite a few of those are lawyers because lawyers are very active in public life. So um, I'm hoping that the public is not getting inured to this as just the cost of doing business. And I also think it's very important that the bar associations and the bar disciplinary committees not simply say, you know, this is what everybody's doing and there's not much we can do about it. I think they really need to step up in the face of this flagrant and often proven round of lying about public affairs. You know, you have lawyers who come outside the courthouse and proclaim their client's innocence and say mm-hmm. they will be acquitted and lawyers who make arguments to the court and construe the facts or the law in their client's behalf, perhaps not quite down the straight and narrow. Where's the line? Okay, first let's start with what a lie is defined as in the law. A lie is a false statement of fact that the speaker knows to be false and wants other people to believe. So some of what you're talking about, we might think about as spinning or embellishment or opinion. I believe my client is innocent. I'm going to try to prove my client is innocent is not exactly the same thing as saying it is a fact that my client did not murder this person. And that's a, a dramatic example, but a lot of things are you know, in a grayer zone. Lawyers in almost every state operate under some version of the ABA's model rules of professional conduct. And those apply to attorneys who have clients. And that requires that the lawyer not lie to the court and also not lie to the public. And that second part is really important in terms of what's going on today. And let me draw a distinction here because some of our non-legal listeners may be thinking about some lawyer jokes that are, you know, that the profession is offended by, but there are a lot of jokes out there about lawyers who don't tell the truth or aren't the epitome of virtue in practicing their profession. First of all, the reason those are quote unquote funny is because we do hold lawyers to a high standard and lawyers hold themselves to a high standard. And if that weren't the image that lawyers were trying to project or trying to live up to, I don't think those jokes would have a punchline. So I I hope that people won't be looking at these very prominent lies about things that really affect the heart of our democracy and think, well, lawyers always lie. No, lawyers are not allowed to lie if they're representing clients. They're not allowed to lie to the court, and they're not allowed to lie to all of us. Explain why the First Amendment doesn't fit in here. Some might ask, well, doesn't a lawyer have First Amendment projections like everyone else? Actually, I can understand why people would think that, but it isn't true. When people apply for membership in the bar, which allows you to have a license to practice law, they undertake certain responsibilities. One is that they affirm that they're going to act as officers of the court and uphold the law and the integrity of the court system. And that subjects them to the discipline that can be applied by the bar association, which requires that the lawyers 
abide by the Code of Professional Conduct. And the Bar Association is not the government. The First Amendment only binds the government, whether we're talking about the lowest level employee in a local government, all the way up to Congress and the President of the United States. Those are the people, the entities, that cannot abridge our First Amendment rights. But when lawyers accept their license and use their license professionally, which allows them to earn a living, they submit to the bar's jurisdiction and the bar can hold them to account if they violate the code that says that they cannot lie to the court and they cannot lie in public about matters in which they are representing someone. Rudy Giuliani's law license was suspended. How did that happen? That happened because he was repeatedly, flagrantly lying to the public by alleging fraud in elections in many, many states. When his factual errors were pointed out, he refused to retract and he doubled down Uh, and he was warned. And ultimately, there was a preliminary hearing and his law license was suspended pending a complete investigation with hearings and so forth. And he challenged that in court. And the judicial opinion upholding the state bar's temporary decision, because the suspension, not a termination of his license, was absolutely devastating. They laid out for dozens of pages his lies to the public, his lies to the press, and indeed his skirting the truth in courtrooms. And in the January 6th hearings by the House Select Committee, there was testimony to the effect that Giuliani had said, you know, paraphrasing, we don't have proof, but we have lots of theories. Well, theories don't cut it for a lawyer speaking in court or even a lawyer speaking in public about such things. And that was after the suspension of his license and the court decision. So that's a good example of discipline working. Giuliani is facing another full hearing in the District of Columbia with respect to his district license to practice law. And a number of other attorneys who have lied about the 2020 election are facing proceedings before their bar associations. And let me just say, uh, to avoid seeming overly political. You know, one of the problems here is the 2020 lies and the lies about Mar-a-Lago, which grow out of the whole Trump situation. You know, they're being told by Republicans, but Democrats are not immune to lying. So you may remember that uh, President Clinton had problems with his Arkansas law license and ultimately reached a settlement because he had lied in a deposition under oath. And in one legal filing, Sidney Powell made the argument to the effect that her lies were so outrageous that no reasonable person would have found them to be statements of fact. It's a wonderful strategy for somebody <laughs> who has no defense. Um, it is true that you know the, the First Amendment status of lies is not quite as clear as the status of many other kinds of speech. Lies were thought to be largely unprotected until 2012, when the Supreme Court issued a decision that said, no, they're actually not outside the protection of the First Amendment, but suggested that there were some circumstances in which they could be regulated, and also that the scrutiny that a court would apply to something that inhibited lying might be less than what it would apply 
to choose the most dramatic example, political speech, that was true. Although the courts can't get involved in deciding what is true and false, because that smacks of 1984, that the state determines truth and falsehood, and maybe incorrectly. But there is a subcategory of lies that are so preposterous that no one would believe them. So if we go back to that legal definition of lying, the speaker intends the listener to believe it. So if you engage in satire that isn't immediately recognizable as funny, like badly aimed satire, then one defense would be, it's so ridiculous, nobody would believe it. And part of the problem with that defense is that she offered her statements in very serious contexts and continued to insist that they were true and to repeat them. So it didn't look like I'm sort of making a joke, which is also one of Trump's recurring defenses for speech that might otherwise be defamatory. He says, oh, I was just joking. And we know he wasn't just joking. But in Sidney Powell's case, the judge said, no, you made this in too many places and you offered it as truth and you may not have submitted papers to the court making these exact claims, but your filings in court were in service of the lies you were telling outside of court. So you can't now say it was a joke or it was just an exaggeration. In fact, that judge sanctioned Powell, made her pay the city of Detroit and other people involved in the lawsuit, and referred her to the Texas bar for sanctions. And that proceeding is ongoing. She's tried to have it dismissed in court, and she failed. So those hearings are ongoing. So you mentioned Mar-a-Lago, and at least one of the lawyers who represent former President Trump swore that there were no classified Mm -hmm. documents at Mar-a-Lago. And I think she added a term, to the best of my knowledge, something like that. After which, as we know, classified documents were seized Mm -hmm. by the FBI. Could the lawyers there be charged with perjury or obstruction of justice? Absolutely. First of all, it's a federal crime to lie to a federal officer much less to submit uh, a document certifying something. This was clearly during her representation of clients. She violated the strictures on her as an officer of the court. She misled the federal government uh, in a, a very broad and important way. And adding to the best of my knowledge is kind of, it's like putting Vaseline all over yourself or Teflon. I mean, you know, she's making clear, I didn't really check this out. And most recently, or, you know, I asked my client, but I didn't really press him. I didn't really look around. Subsequently, she said, um, well, it's really not my fault because other lawyers told me that all the documents had been submitted, and I signed the statement they told me to sign, or basically the statement based on their representations. I don't know whether she wrote it or they wrote it, but she's basically saying, not my fault. No, when you represent a client, the lawyer has an obligation before certifying to the federal government or saying something in court to find out whether what your client is telling you can be backed up by evidence. Now, Sometimes clients do mislead their attorneys, but the attorney should be in a position to say, I did everything I could to try to verify what I was telling 
the court or the Department of Justice. You can't just go in and say, oh, you know, my client told me he didn't rob the bank, so I'm going to tell the court he didn't rob the bank. I don't need to ask any questions, look for documents. We have other responsibilities as members of the bar. And since that time, she made some other absolutely amazing statements that are comparable to Powell saying, oh, what I was saying about the stolen election and the Venezuelan dictator capturing our voting machines, uh, that was just a joke. Abba actually said, I think within the last two, three days, um, it's possible that the empty folders labeled confidential at Mar-a-Lago that were in the boxes seized uh, under warrant by the federal government contain invisible documents that no one can see. She said that in a cable interview. I really don't know how to respond to that one. Let's turn to the New York Bar Associations. Tell us what they've done. So the first report was by the New York County Bar Association, which, while not a huge organization, has long been a leader in civic responsibility. And they pointed out that there were lawyers who were telling verifiable falsehoods, factual falsehoods, that were resulting in violence and threats of violence. For example, toward the federal magistrate who issued the warrant for the search of Mar-a-Lago and events leading up to the attack on the FBI building uh, later that week. And then the New York City Bar Association, which is one of the largest bar associations in the country, issued a much more detailed report on lies about the search of Mar-a-Lago by attorneys and pointed out, again, that this can invoke violence against judges, FBI agents, everybody involved in law enforcement and other public servants. And I would compare that as well to the ongoing attacks on election workers, although that was not part of the report. And they said it's it's really important that lawyers should not make claims of wrongdoing against officers of the court for which they have no factual basis or which they know to be incorrect, or even if they're misleading. And they should not undermine the judicial process or the rule of law. Thanks so much, Catherine. That's Catherine Ross, a professor at George Washington University Law School. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists, But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Congress looks like it's close to preventing the kind of constitutional crisis avoided during the presidential transition in 2021. This week, a Senate committee approved the revamp of an 1887 law that sets out congressional procedures for certifying presidential elections. The legislation is intended to prevent a repeat of the 2020 presidential election when former President Donald Trump and his allies sought to challenge the election results, leading to the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. Both the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell support the bill. Lawmakers are under pressure to find a compromise before the end of the year because of the likelihood that House Republicans, most of whom oppose the changes, will gain control of that chamber. Joining me is elections law expert Richard Brafalt, a professor at Columbia Law School. Rich, tell us about the current law, the Electoral Count Act. Yes, well, the Electoral Count Act was the act passed by Congress in 1887, which sets out the procedure for the counting of the electoral votes in Congress, for the raising and handling of complaints or questions about the electoral vote, and for the formal determination of who has won the presidential election by declaring who's the winner of the electoral vote. And so the Senate bill is a bipartisan effort, Republican Susan Collins and Democrat Joe Manchin. What does it do in general? It does three or four very significant things. First, it declares that the role of the vice president, who is technically the president of the Senate and who under the Constitution has to preside over this process, has an entirely ministerial role. The vice president of the United States has to stand up there and declare what happens next and says, here's the result, that the vice president has no substantive role. As you may recall, this was one of the high points of the controversy after the last election when then-President Trump insisted that then-Vice President Pence had the authority to declare that certain electoral votes were invalid and not to count them. And Pence himself said he didn't have that authority. This makes it clear that the vice president has no such authority, that the vice president's role is just ministerial, like a secretary, just there to to say, this is what it says, here's the result. So that's probably a very important thing. And everyone always thought that was the rule, Mm -hmm. but because Trump made such a noise and his supporters about such a noise that the vice president could, in effect, change the result, it's probably important that that be clarified. Second, it rather dramatically raises the threshold for objections. Under the current law, all you need to object to the electoral vote of a state and stop the whole process and force the two houses of Congress to meet separately to debate the objections is one member of the House and one member of the Senate, just one from each, to object to, say, a state like uh, the vote from Arizona or the vote from Michigan. The Senate bill raises the threshold to one-fifth 
of the House and one-fifth of the Senate. So you need to have 20 senators in effect. And what would that be? Something like 87 members of the House objecting to a particular state. So that's a dramatic increase in the threshold. Uh, those are probably the two most prominent things. The bill narrows the grounds of objections really just down to two. One is that the electoral winners weren't picked in the state in time, and the other, there was some impropriety in the way an individual elector voted. It also creates a procedure for judicial challenges to the outcome of the election in a state to be done in an expedited way. And it clarifies that in light of all the talk about the power of state legislatures, that any state legislative action that applies to the election will count only if it was passed before Election Day. So you can't have state legislatures after Election Day trying to pass laws that undo the result. And those are probably the, the highlights. There are a number of other more minor things, but limiting the power, declaring the limited, the limited nature of the power of the vice president, raising the threshold for objections, narrowing the categories of objections, providing for expedited judicial review of challenges. Oh, and there's one more thing. There's a, a language in the current law that talks about what happens in the case of a failed election. And uh, that was clearly meant to be things like an election was thrown off by a natural disaster. But some people, again, trying to make trouble would argue a failed election is one where we don't think the election went the right way or we think that there were problems with the voting process. So the new law, the law would very clearly indicate that a failed election would, build, would allow the state to delay the selection of the electors, uh, something that results from a, an extraordinary and catastrophic event, um, uh, which as defined by state law, presumably that would be something along the lines of a major hurricane or a flood. Surprisingly, it got near unanimous approval by the Rules Committee. Not surprisingly, the one objection came from Senator Ted Cruz, who, of course, led an effort to challenge right. Biden's election victory. He said, quote, this bill is all about Donald J. Trump. It is about Donald Trump, isn't it? Yes. I mean, everyone agrees that the old, the current Electoral Count Act is flawed. It's very unclear. There's a lot of inconsistencies in it. Uh, there are particular problems if there's a disagreement from within a state as to, you know, one, one chief state official saying the winner was one person, the governor says one thing, and maybe the chief justice of the state Supreme Court or the, the secretary of state of the state says something else. So there are a lot of uh, uncertainties in it. There was always a problem with the, that low, very low threshold of objections, although until recently it had never been used, or it had hardly been used, I should say. But certainly the 2020 election, the 2021 attack on Congress, January 6th, just sort of highlighted the significance of these uncertainties and the extreme importance of getting them resolved. Did it surprise you that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell announced support of the bill and a number of other Republicans? Not really. I mean, I think everyone realizes that the current law is a mess, that it creates more problems than it solves, that this this surprising debate about the role of the vice president it really seems who could possibly believe that one person could change the election, especially one person who has an, a stake in the outcome, since the vice president is either going to be up for re-election for vice president or often the vice president has been running for president. You know, how one person could, could legally change the outcome. You know, the, all, a lot of these things just didn't make a lot of sense, but we saw how it could be uh, weaponized in January 6th. So I think it was important to have it resolved. And it doesn't clearly help one side or the other. I mean, in 2025, the vice president's going to be a Democrat. You know, Kamala Harris is the person who's going to be standing up there and counting the results. So it, it doesn't necessarily help one side or the other. The House passed a companion bill last week. Does it differ from the Senate bill 
in many ways? The most obvious difference is it raises even higher the threshold for an objection to an electoral vote. The Senate, as just to remind you, the current law is one person from each chamber. The Senate raises it to one-fifth of each chamber. The House would raise it to one-third of each chamber, which is a much higher threshold. I think there are other differences, but that's probably the most significant one. Let's discuss what it doesn't protect. So the laws that have been passed in states making it more difficult to vote, have you kept track of, you know, how many states have done that? A lot. I don't have a specific number, but uh, and, in, and, and doing it in many different ways and making it harder to register and making it harder to vote, making it much harder to vote absentee in certain states, changing the, the procedures for challenging electors to make it easier for, for people to challenge voters. I mean, there's a lot of different uh, uh, pushbacks in many states that are going to make it harder for people to vote in 2024 than it was in 2020. This doesn't address any of that. Senator Schumer, uh, early on, had wanted to uh, fold the electoral college reform, the electoral count reform, into a broader voting bill, voting rights bill, by, which did pass the House but was filibustered in the Senate. So he uh, you know, ultimately agreed that it was absolutely crucial to deal with these electoral college problems. And so, you know, kind of acceded to the Republican objections in Congress to federal law protecting the right to vote in, in, in elections. And so this, this bill, uh, either both the House and the Senate bill, only deal with the procedures for, you know, counting the electoral votes. Come the November elections, there may be next year many election deniers who'll be in positions of power over elections. This uh, Electoral Count Act doesn't address that either. No, no, no not at all. I mean, the, elect- this, the Electoral Count Act proceeds from what happens after the states have had their election and their results are announced. Uh, I mean, what happened in 2020 is we had the, the elections were held, the results were announced, uh, they were challenged, the challenges were all rejected, uh, the, elector, the electors met and cast their votes, and you still had objections. So this doesn't really address anything uh, really before uh, that leading up to the, to the decision who is won at the state level. This is, addresses solely uh, what happens in Washington, which, again, really until 2020, had never seen anything like this in terms of the level of uncertainty or objection. So it does get rid of a number of the issues that surprisingly uh, kind of emerged as big issues in January of 2021. Thanks for being on the show, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brofault of Columbia Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Since a ruling by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in Philadelphia in August, at least nine new class action suits have been filed in Pennsylvania against well-known companies such as Zillow, Lowe's, Expedia, AutoZone, Chewy's, and Michael Stores, accusing them of violating the state's wiretapping and electronic surveillance control act by the use of software that allows them to monitor their customers' website browsing, recording mouse movements, keystroke, search terms, information, input into the websites and content viewed. The providers of the software say it helps their customers tweak their websites to provide a better experience for users and reject the claim that it creates privacy risks. My guest is Adam Cook of Hogan Lovells. So first of all, tell us about this session replay software, what it does. Sure. So session replay software is a particular technology that is used by a number of websites, everything from retailers to manufacturers and all sorts of other companies. Basically, any company that has some type of a web presence where they interact with consumers in some way. And the, the software enables companies and other entities and organizations that host these websites to learn a little bit more about how consumers are interacting with their websites and services they offer online. And so one of the key features is to gather more information about their websites or how their websites are being useful and other ways they can um, redesign or retool their website to make them more accessible and useful to consumers. So it's effectively trying to kind of capture how a consumer navigates on the website. So if someone, for example, goes on to X website and um, is looking to purchase a product but, you know, gets a certain way in the process, but then kind of drops it and leaves it and, and doesn't continue with the purchase. The entity that hosts the websites will kind of want to know, okay, well, was was the process by which a consumer has to make the purchase so complicated and they have to jump through various different pages and enter some information on one page and other information on another page? Do we make it so hard for the consumer that they just kind of threw up their hands and gave up? And can we redesign our website in a way that makes the the consumer experience more smooth. And so that's kind of a kind of typical use case for this type of software is to kind of improve organizations' ability to interact with end users who are navigating um, to their websites and trying to take advantage or utilize whatever service or products they're, they're offering. 
Do they also use this? Do let's say do some companies use this to sell the information to marketing firms, etc.? I think there there are a host of different uses for this. I'm not specifically aware of a particular entity that um, uses it for that particular um, reason, but it's it's certainly utilized for a lot of reasons to understand more about consumer engagement and the like. So what are the specific complaints the plaintiffs are making in these lawsuits that are based on wiretap laws? So a kind of initial point is that, you know, these suits are not a 2022 vintage type of action. These date back a couple of years at least. Um, And they cover a range of different entities that have been sued. So again, kind of many different industry sectors that all have some type of connection to kind of end users and consumers. And I would say everything from um, companies that are selling various home improvement products to companies that are involved in real estate transactions and, and everything kind of in between um, have been have been targeted, and the kind of the essence of these claims is that this session replay software is violative of state wiretap laws because they purportedly intercept communications between the end consumer and the web, you know, the entity that they're navigating to, abc.com or xyz.com. And so they're they're basically alleging that hey I I was trying to navigate to this website and was trying to you know learn more information or purchase some product and the fact that some of my information about what I was doing on the website was shared with a third party service provider that helps a company set up and kind of run these tools that that is the quote unquote violation of the Wiretap Act and those wiretap statutes are of course decades old. Um, and both under both the federal version and, and the state law version. And these suits are really arise under the state law versions. They've been primarily brought under um, Florida and California law, and um, most recently under uh, Pennsylvania law. Of course, there's some others out there, but that's the main thrust of them, I'd say, was under those three states. So before we got to this Third Circuit decision, or when lower courts have thrown these out pretty consistently, what's the legal basis that they throw them out under? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's actually been a number of different factors, one of which is that the state wiretap law simply doesn't apply um, because it was not meant to effectively impose liability for this type of activity. Basically, it's analytic, you know, some type of analytics on consumers' interaction with the website. There's also been um, some decisions that have found effectively consent, so that consumers, impliedly or otherwise, have consented to this type of software, um, you know, based on disclosures and the, and their own conduct regarding what was going on on the, on the website they were navigating to. So there's kind of a host of different reasons that in which courts have found that these these claims just simply lack merit at the pleading stage. So now let's uh, talk about what happened at the Third Circuit. One of these lawsuits was dismissed by the lower court judge, and what did the Third Circuit say? 
Yeah, so the I believe the the, the lower court um, rejected the claim at the summary judgment phase, finding that the Pennsylvania wiretap statute effectively did not apply to this alleged conduct and was inapplicable because you know the the plaintiff plaintiff's conduct just simply didn't fall under the statutory definition of a of a actionable interception. And the Third Circuit reversed that district court uh, decision and remanded it, um, effectively holding that the Pennsylvania statute could impose liability for these particular allegations, although I'll note that the um, Third Circuit was careful to say that there could be other defenses to this alleged violation of the um, Pennsylvania statute, including consent, and it was remanding the case back to the district court to consider those issues in the first instance. So it was very much a kind of statutory interpretation-driven decision, interpreting the Pennsylvania wiretap law. And based on that decision, finding that the district court had, in its view, uh, misread the statute and then remanding it for further, basically further analysis and consideration, including for other defenses that defendants had raised um, below. So the Third Circuit, its decisions only apply or only hold the Third Circuit courts. Could this decision have implications outside the Third Circuit? Good question. I think because the decision is so specific to the Pennsylvania statute and analyzing the language under that law and, you know, what is a, both what is an interception under that law and then effectively um, you know, what is actionable under that statute. I think that the, you know, its import and, and impact beyond Pennsylvania law and the Third Circuit will likely be limited because, again, it's so, it's so specific to the statute. That said, I would expect plaintiff's lawyers in other courts dealing with other statutes to potentially try to cite it as persuasive authority in interpreting other state laws. But I think that will have limited impact, again, because it's so sui generis to the Pennsylvania statute. So since companies who do business on the Internet are doing business in every state, could plaintiffs just bring these suits in Pennsylvania, as they've done in recent lawsuits against Zillow, Lowe's, Expedia, AutoZone, Chewy's, and Michael Stores? There's certainly a challenge for um, defendants in light of the Third Circuit decision here in that they are likely to see additional lawsuits, and that actually is definitely seems to be the case. I don't know if it was today or, or late last week. Um, the defendants in the Third Circuit case just filed a, a notice of supplemental authority to the Third Circuit pointing out that I believe it was 10... Um, district court cases have been filed since the Third Circuit's decision alleging violations of the state wiretap law, including by the same name plaintiff um, at issue in the Third Circuit case, Ashley Popa or Papa. And so um, this does this does appear to be triggering um, additional litigation and includes by, several cases by the same firm litigating the Third Circuit case again, bringing claims under the Pennsylvania statute. So this does seem like it is leading to a, a kind of rush of additional litigation here. 
time will tell whether the Third Circuit either kind of reconsiders its decision in light of the um, petition for for rehearing or rehearing on Bonk, uh, and also whether kind of how district courts deal with this. Perhaps consent um, will be an issue that kind of dooms these additional cases, and there obviously are a bunch of other arguments open to defendants, so it's unclear how, how much, what legs these cases will have, but it certainly is not stopping plaintiffs from, from testing the waters here and filing, filing additional cases. And when we talk about consent, are they talking about that check mark that almost every website you go to requires you to check, I agree, just to get on the site? Is that the consent that they're talking about? I think consent can take many different forms. Uh, I think certainly one form of consent would be a consumer agreeing to terms and conditions or terms of use that apply to the website and, you know, the purchase of products or services through that website. And, yeah, I think often it will be effectively um, some type of either it's kind of part of the, the purchase flow that a consumer goes through where they'll see a reference to those or have to click through them. Um, and uh, it'll it'll likely be included in one of the terms um, in in that in that. So I think that is certainly a possibility for how consent would arise. But there are certainly other ways in which consumers can manifest um, consent to terms in these types of scenarios. And is the concern of privacy advocates also that some important personal information of consumers? could be leaked by mistake or by a breach? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think there there is an important distinction here between um, kind of the session replay and related types of software and data um, concern, security concerns more generally. I think um, the any anytime you navigate onto a website, data is moving back and forth and, and everything like that. And simply because data is is kind of in motion and going around um, doesn't mean that there's that that itself creates kind of an existential data security threat. I think whether session replay software collects and logs certain data about consumer interactions with websites um, does not mean that, you know, ipso facto that that creates data security challenges for the entities that collect it. And I'll you know, give you one example would be, say, a session replay software um, uh, is collecting information about user interactions with a, uh, you know, some third-party website that it's helping to set this up for. You know, that third-party vendor may very well have um, very robust data security controls um, and have uh, a number of factors in place that is going to mitigate the risk of any um, anything happening to that data. So I don't I don't see a kind of direct tie between session replay um, software and kind of data security concerns um, more generally. Thanks for being on the show, Adam. That's Adam Cook of Hogan Lovells. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Bloomberg.
It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.